Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. What does the movie Moulin Rouge and VR medical training have in common? Martin. Martin Brown is an experienced educator with a demonstrated history in working in the entertainment industry, producer of Moulin Rouge and co-producer of Romeo Julia and art director of Strictly Ballroom. He is a strong professional with a master's of humanities focused in literary from the University of Tasmania and now developed VR training platforms for health professionals at USYD. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Martin. Hey, how you going? I'm good, brother. How are you doing today? Pretty good, yeah. Yeah, it's raining like mad here. We're having uh, floods in Sydney at the moment. Oh, this is, it is 97 degrees, a soothing 97 degrees over here. <laughs> and we take some of that rain from you. Uh, well, uh, uh, good to connect. I'm so appreciative you made the time. Um, I'm, I am really excited to talk about the journey that you've had from, from producing Moulin Rouge and through the film industry all the way to now doing um, medical training applications using virtual reality it sounds like it sounds like it's a story in and of itself and i'd love to learn a bit about it sure um i suppose i've just always liked making stuff when i was a kid i had a workshop in the backyard my dad was a, a joiner so i was always in his factory making stuff mm -hmm. um and th that's just always been the drive that i've had uh, when i was at university i worked for an amateur theater company that eventually became a professional theater company so i trained as a teacher and taught high school for a few years mostly drama um, but also science and literature and then swapped over into theater and again it was really just about storytelling and making uh events really and connecting with audiences that was that was a great ride for a long time i did that for probably 15 years and through that i met um some people uh who went on to work in film so that was baz lerman and catherine martin at that in those days like me they were just theatre kids and coming up through the ranks. They had a little theatre play called Strictly Ballroom and uh, eventually that became the film, Strictly Ballroom, and I, I moved across from those theatre days into that that project and then stayed with Baz and Catherine for 10 years and so worked on the first three films that they made. Um, and that was really just because out of the love of making things and, and communicating mm -hmm. with audiences. Um, after that, I, I had my own company for a while, making all sorts of media products, um, mostly uh, traditional flat screen media, I mm. suppose. Um, then an opportunity came up to go to our national film school and I, I sort of re-went, re-engaged with teaching. So I was there for six years, uh, did a lot of curriculum design. Um, and that led to, that. then I moved across the University of Sydney. And I guess because I've had this this drive to make things and also this desire to connect with audiences, that uh, meant I had some level of expertise in telling stories with technology and that became uh, useful in the training space in uh, medical practice. So um, mm. I was my first job at University of Sydney was actually embedded in a hospital. So I used to walk through the hospital to go to walk, work and that was a very powerful experience about the, the the environment that frontline medical staff work in um you know the the emergency department is open 24 7 and everybody from the world ends up there for various reasons so it's a very real uh when you talk about audience it doesn't get much more real than that but those people need 
to be cared for and need to be looked after. So that's a that's a was a very compelling driver for me to try and make a contribution in that space. So mm. I guess that was where um, the ideas that I and approaches that I did been developing over a long period of time were useful in looking at what those people needed and seeing how uh, technology could become an intervention in that training space. So I, I don't know, that's the, mm. that's, that's a long, short story of uh, how I got there. <laughs> I got it. So, I mean, inspired from real world events that you've experienced, seeing what it's like to actually go and what is really happening in the front lines of people suffering in pain and, and how do you build applications to actually service their needs? I mean, I'd, I'd be really curious about you talking about telling stories on traditional 2D media and then transferring that as a skill set into actual training models for the virtual reality platform. How is that? What have you leveraged to bring it over and how is it different in those areas when you're actually saying, okay, I'm going to tell a story, say Moulin Rouge or any other type of media, say you're hearing the story, you're going to end up over here. With the training platforms, it seems like the entertainment and the overall medical training seems very, very different in the areas of entertainment versus education. So what did you bring over and what was needed to be innovated in the space to be able to uh, compel someone with a story? Good, excellent question, thank you. Um, I, th I guess in the middle ground between entertainment and education is engagement. And that, mm -hmm. that's the, the thing that's fascinating to me. You think about live performance and stand-up comedy, it's immediately, mm -hmm. immediately engaging. You know as soon as the joke has left your lips, whether it's funny or not and and it's palpable and it's emotional and it's direct and it falls out or it, or it soars or you know whatever the reaction is so that that's engagement and so what happens with a lot of screen media content that we create we have to um, premeditate how to devise that experience for the audience so we script it we uh, imagine how an audience will engage we we create the artifacts with the camera we, we edit them together, we've, we've finessed them, we put it on the screen. And what we imagined that engagement would be, um, we hope we deliver. And consummate mm. practitioners in that space are able to premeditate an experience, assemble it from parts, put it on a screen, and, and achieve that same level of engagement, that immediacy and that engagement. And again, you know, if, if it soars and works, then it ranks well on Netflix. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, that that's the art form that's practiced there. So I think that's um, it's not such a big leap as it seems to suggest that with virtual reality, what you have there is an opportunity um, to have interactive engagement that's closer to real time life. I suppose you're creating mm -hmm. an environment that's a, some sort of facsimile substitute for the real world, and you're but you're also curating it and designing it. And I think. In that sense, it, it feels more to me like theatre, which is premeditated and arranged for the audience, mm. but it's also like stand-up comedy, um, immediate in the moment because you can you can premeditate a theatre production, but every performance of it will be different. Now, some will be longer, some will be shorter. You know, I used to work in theatre a lot, and um, you know, the Friday night show we do eight shows a week. The Friday night show was always the best. This, that audience, there's something about that audience coming off, a, off the working week, being um, hyped up the night out than any other night of the week. So that's just to say that what the audience bring to the event, no matter how well you've premeditated it, it's still a live moment. 
And I think that there's something very similar happening in VR where you curate the experiences, but you also recognize the agency of the person using it. And so it's a, it's a relationship between those two sides, I guess. So to me, it doesn't seem at all dissimilar. It seems like the same fabric. That's really interesting because you're not talking about making media for a 2D image. What you're talking about is taking real-world role-playing interactive experiences of theater arts plus improv, and you're, and you're taking the lessons learned from that and transferring that over to a virtual improv theater session that allows you to, to test this on people to see how do they really respond because there's, there, now you, don't, you have more of that immediacy and impact versus you go and release it. I like how you said uh, well, whether it does well on Netflix or not, not Hollywood, but Netflix. And I, it's funny because like really is nowadays, the new media, the new Hollywood, a lot of it is Netflix. It's like, can you make it in Netflix? If you can, that's incredible. And, and now you don't have that friction point of releasing it on Netflix and kind of seeing how it performs with downloads. You can actually go inside and dive in and see how people are responding and interacting like an audience for a comedy set to see is the material I'm creating landing and having the emotional and educational impact and inside the virtual landscape. What does that look like for you when you're testing out to find out if it actually does have an impact? Can you talk me through some ways that you use VR and the way that you look to see if it lands on the crowd or not? Yeah, that's, that's yeah, also a great question. Thank you. Um, I guess we can draw that distinct. This is where maybe it's not, exactly the same as entertainment because with entertainment mm -hmm. you know you laugh or, or you don't you cry or you don't mm -hmm. you you care or you don't um those things are in that genre of um wanting to be taken away from yourself yeah. having a little holiday i suppose uh one hour holiday by watching something that's engaging so that that's that's that genre but in training what we're trying to do is is um change people's behavior by mm -hmm. uh, providing engaging experiences. That's, that's one, of my def one of my favorite definitions of learning is that if as a result of the experience that you've provided for the learner, if their behavior doesn't change, then they haven't learned. And that's a, mm -hmm. that's a hefty responsibility when you think about it. A lot of education um, is based on this idea that you feed information, you, you supply information to the person and then test them on whether they've retained it. Um, there's a content-based, knowledge-based paradigm, which is still prevalent, mostly in education. And so what we're able to access in virtual reality, obviously, is not just intellectual content delivery, but also emotional and physiological responses. It's a more complete medium um, available for us to interact. And that, mm. that sort of level of um, engagement in the task is particularly, I find, um, you know, you can give someone a, a, a manual to read, but if you give them a time-based uh, experience in virtual reality, physiologically, mm -hmm. they feel driven by the time-based element of it. And so they have a different mm -hmm. engagement and reaction to it. What What's interesting from a learning perspective is that you have the opportunity in VR um, to do what I suppose we call, what's called in education, productive failure. You can uh, give people an opportunity to move into that space and not succeed. They, they, you know, we, when you're trying to save a patient's life in one of our apps, you know, it, they don't, a, a person doesn't actually die, but if you make the same sort of decisions that you would make when you're actually dealing with a live patient on the ward. So mm -hmm. that level of engagement and the capacity to fail and have a feedback loop 
on that um, is a way in which you can uh, give people a really uh, genuine opportunity to uh, provide to have agency in their own learning in the sense that they can they can say i could have done that better i want to have another go at it so it's a much more yeah. participatory experience than mm -hmm. usual didactic teaching i suppose mm -hmm. yeah so you're, you're saying that the model shouldn't be focusing on whether or not they can spit out the same data you're saying the model is do they do they acquire new habits that they perform in some sort of embodied cognition kind of way, experiential learning versus just, you know, repetition of information. And yeah. that's, that's, it's really interesting in terms of looking at those designs, do you have patterns or styles that you, do you take, like, is it just so we have context, you know, what is the education you're giving to these people? Is it, is it how to do surgery? Is it how to do therapy? Is it how to do, what is the, what is the data that you're transferring the skills and the habits you're bringing over? into this immersive media to be able to train them on? Yeah, um, the, it's horses for courses. So basically, um, we look at the problem space primarily. Mm. We try to work out, uh, we love it when uh, the problem comes to us because unless the people who have the problem have a pressing need, we can, we can throw every solution in the world against the wall, but if it, won't, it won't stick unless that group needs the solution. So. The first one that we got some traction with was advanced life support. So you, a lot of people will do um, basic life support. So if you you do the St. John's ambulance certificate here, I'm sure there's equivalent where you are, um, and somebody you know has a heart attack, you can have you can do compressions and you can try to keep their keep them uh, not dead until the ambulance arrives. When the ambulance arrives, they do advanced life support. So it's a it's a higher level of uh, skill of the maintenance of life. It also involves trying to solve the problem of why the person's heart stopped in the first place. So in hospital, um, there are occasionally heart attacks in ward. Um, people have heart attacks in hospitals. You know, these are not well people, so some of them have heart attacks. What happens is that a, a flash team assembles very rapidly so that the, the adjacent nurses and medical staff perform basic life support. A team assembles and arrives and takes over and continues compressions uh, on a two-minute cycle. They do a shockable uh they they look at the heart rhythm they decide whether to provide a shock or not shock they decide whether to administer um drugs and they go through a process a very algorithmic process of trying to analyze in this patient's uh case why did their heart stop and so mm -hmm. if you can if you can work that out and remove the problem you, you can and you've kept them not dead for long enough then you that you can bring them back to life and that's the objective so in the training in space that that um, we investigated was that 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 environment is taught. People need in, new entrants to the profession need to be trained to do that those roles, mm. and people who are in that space need to be reaccredited annually. And that's there is a system for that currently in any teaching hospital in the world. Mm. Um, and the standard for advanced life support, uh, the algorithm is almost universal, um, and so it's it's a very widespread contextual problem. What the trainers themselves felt was that the training environment was an inadequate replic replication of the operational environment. They use mm -hmm. uh, high-spec uh, mannequins mm -hmm. in, a, in a lab. You can do chest compressions on them. You can uh, work out what the problem is. But the team, the flash team, which is usually five, customarily five or six people, was reproduced in the training environment by two clinical educators standing in for all the roles. 
And mm. so they felt they themselves felt that was an inadequate representation of the environment in which the person needs to practice. And that that environment of education says that the closer training environment is to the practice environment, the better the education is. And mm. so what we felt was that um, virtual reality could better reproduce that environment under the pressure of time with the with sort of adrenaline rush that you get from being confronted by someone whose heart has stopped and your responsibility is to restart it. And we, we built uh, an app that duplicates that environment. So the, the role that we train for is the team leader role. That person stands at the foot of the bed and gives instructions to the other team members and um, goes through the process and the algorithmic cycle of analysing the problem and um, can be successful in, in bringing that person back to life. The way that we've developed the app, every patient that a um, trainee encounters is a new patient. So they, they can put the headset on, they can do a case, and every time they put the headset on, it'll be a different patient. So they get uh, experience in going through the problem solving that's that's important in actually bringing the person back to life. So I mm -hmm. guess that um, the question we're always trying to answer is why would you invest in VR? Why wouldn't you keep current practice? What's mm -hmm. With current practice, what they do, there's a three ring binder. They give it to the student for two weeks to take home. They study it and then they come into the lab with the plastic mannequin and they're tested on whether they can perform the skills. Well, now what we're doing is giving the, the, the trainee a headset. They can take it home, put it on, log on, and they can do a, a case in real time where they definitely feel like they're under the pressure of time and they have to perform. What we've mm -hmm. also done is, is found ways that we can provide feedback to them about the choices that they made. Um, you, you, the compression depth was too shallow. Um, you, the drug dosage was wrong for that person. Um, you, you didn't check the labs in a timely fashion. That, that rhythm, that heart rhythm that you saw on the monitor was shockable and you didn't shock it. So we get a whole lot of feedback that comes back to the person bespoke to their performance, which, which enables them to say, I'm strong in those areas, I'm weak in those areas, I'm going to have another iteration of this experiment, I'm going to work on those, those skills. So it, yeah. it is, I guess that's where that sense of student agency comes into it. Yeah. No, it's awesome. It's a great use case. Um, and thank you for explaining because it, it really helps paint a picture um, along the pathway of this. And you, you, what you start off with really breaking down, which was great, is one of the main questions anybody asks is, why Why should I even do it in VR? Who cares? Yeah. Right. Which is one of the big, big things. And then broke down that one of the best use cases for any type of VR training are things that are rare, things that are risky, things that are expensive, or things that are difficult. Right. And if you talk yeah. about, um, literally advanced, uh, advanced like life, uh, life extension and being able to do things where you are actually doing this advanced life support where it's like, okay, this is highly critical. This is, this is rare. This is risky. This is expensive. And then when you got to go do it, it's, it needs to be done right. It's a very small margin of oops, you know, you know, accidents happening. And what I, what it makes me think about is just like, is a, is a, is a couple of, of things with that. Um, one of them, from what I understand, just for clarifying, it's a single player experience, right? It's a lead, team lead. They come in, they go through all the scenarios so that they can kind of direct the show when it comes up, right? Yep. Yep. And yeah. the other the other people, we haven't yet attempted to make it multiplayer because if you can get a bunch of people together to 
connect in VR, why not put them in a real room together and then they get the personal interaction in a higher quality way. So it's not mm. necessarily a better duplication. But yes, it's mm. single player. And, but the other team, play, team members um, are represented by game-like avatars and they, mm. they're animated and they go through um, cycles. You know, they, you can instruct them. It's a point at the current, currently it's, we're trying to get it voice activated, but it's currently a, a drop down point and click. Sure. And so you can issue instructions to them. If you notice that the avatar is um, performing the compressions and they're not the correct depth, you can correct that. The, the, the rate at which they, they apply the compressions, you can correct that. The drug, you can instruct them to give uh, blood dosage. Sometimes mm -hmm. the avatars will say, I'm getting tired. And so mm -hmm. you have to issue an instruction to say at the next cycle, swap with someone else because, you know, that's normal. Under, under So we've put we've put a lot of um, the real world exigencies into it so that it kind of, as best we can in a game-like environment, we can duplicate um, the, the, the situation that people face. And that's, that's, you know, obviously we're in an iterative cycle. So we've done, we've done a lot of work um, uh, with, a, with the, the lead clinical educator at Westmead Hospital who, who pioneered the, the, the lab there with the mannequins. He's, mm -hmm. he's a content expert in this space. And so he's been, um, we're, you know, I can't remember what version of the app we're up to, but it must be 40 or 50, where we've continually added complexity to it and depth and even mm -hmm. very experienced, like 10-year veteran um, emergency department doctors, when they put this headset on, they go, wow, that's, that really was challenging. You know, they, yeah. it's at that level where, where the decision-making, the analysis, the the testing of their 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 protocol knowledge is is challenging for them so uh, yeah that's mm -hmm. it, it is single player yeah well no it's great and uh whenever i hear teams come together though i mean there's um a lot of use cases that you can do but programming out for single player and expanding out to things that make sense later on is great i just whenever i hear those things people collaborating together uh, through VR, through space and time, it's one of the great use cases for VR. It's just very expensive, very time consuming. It's it's a big it's a big ordeal to just you can't just slap on uh, multiplayer. But also, what you're talking about is great as as a team lead. If you can map out enough of these decisions, these branching narratives, you can really come up with the ability to to map out so many possibilities to where you're gonna be you're gonna get all these edge questions, which is which is wonderful to to find that because then you're gonna know in that situation what what you really need to do with Building this out, though, you talked a little bit about having a subject matter expert create this. Do you want to talk about who are the key resources? Who are the, the positions that are needed in order to build out an application like this? You need to have this type of person, this type of person, this type of person, because it's not just one individual. I'm sure it's a team effort. So what does that look like? That's a, that's that's uh, I think that's something that's been really um, a big discovery for the work we've been doing. Um, another another uh, app that we're building is uh, called Code Black, and it's about uh, de-escalating violence in the emergency department. Because, as I mentioned before, emergency department open twenty four seven. All of the troubled people from society who have nowhere else to go quite often end up there. And so, not only sick people, and there's there's a lot of people. The doors always open. People people turn up there, and and it's a it's a complex environment, and it's it's set up to help people who are not well but there are a lot of uh, there is a lot of behavioral disturbance that happens in those environments it's often the worst it's it's a normal day for the people who work there it's the worst day of the person's life for the people who visit there so mm. um, what what we've found um, 
and this is again worldwide. There's a, there's an escalating in, uh, increase of in violent episodes in emergency departments, um, and so we did a base study around that, looking at current practice. How do um, pe how are people trained to deal with a violent individual in this space, and what are the outcomes that happen? So it's called Code Black because in our system, if someone kicks off and starts mm -hmm. swinging or spitting or whatever. Um, a team, again, a team assembles and they do a, a, a takedown. They actually have to physically restrain that person and either physically restrain them to a bed or chemically restrain them, um, sedate them. So, so this is not uncommon. This can happen on a daily basis in emergency departments, sad to say. Mm. Um, and so people, staff need these, these people who I have unlimited respect for have to deal with those situations as part of their normal working life. I've spoken to many, many, many people who work in this space and not one of them hasn't been punched or attacked. It's just, a, it's one of the most violent workplaces there is. Um, so what we did was we, we did a, 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 an introductory study. We sat in the emergency departments of the four hospitals in the, in the local health district. Mm. We, start, we talked to people who'd been Code Black um, events. We talked to security guards. We talked to administration. We talked to patients. Um, we talked to doctors, we talked to nurses, we talked to psychologists, talked to social workers. And we actually formed a working party of all of those people so that we could mm -hmm. get expert advice. What was interesting was that although everybody knows this is a problem, there hadn't really been that attempt to get that um, common round the same table approach to analysing the problem space and looking at what contribution we could make. So we, we sort of, um, as part of our base research study, we brought that group together and we started to work out, um, was there a, a contribution that um, VR could make in this space? And as you said, um, violent episodes in an ED, it's not some, I, I did the training. There is, a, there is a training, there's a day and a half program that's been run hundreds of times for people, but it's basically at best um, role play. So card-based role play where someone is given the role of being someone who's a bit upset and someone else is given the role of trying to calm them down. Um, and again, not necessarily an adequate representation of someone who is violent, you know, violently attacking you. That, that's, um, that's a hard situation to reproduce. So we looked at all of these situations. We did a lot of work on it and we started mm -hmm. to develop different modules of training in virtual reality um, because I remember when I finished the trainings, um, the trainer said, nothing will prepare you for your first day in the emergency department. And we thought, hang on, maybe VR could, could help you prepare. Mm. And uh, for example, one of the things we found out is that um, nursing staff who'd been trained three or four years and started working in the ED had never seen a takedown. Again, it's a hard thing to reproduce in a training setting. And so the first time it happens, it's quite a violent event. Um, it, it's, a con it's confronting for the staff. So we used actors. We, we worked out what the sta gold standard of doing a takedown is. Um, we negotiated that with security staff, with medical staff, with doctors, nurses, everybody. And we used 360 video. And so you can put the headset on and you're standing there. It's like you're standing next to one. And simply mm -hmm. the visceral impact of being close to this event um, and having explained to you how it is systematic, how it's organised, in what way it's organised, um, how the patient's safety is protected, 
you know, how they're looked after. Yep. You actually then do, you have had the experience of witnessing a takedown before you have to do it in ward on, in the ED on, in your working life. So that's mm -hmm. just one of the modules that we've developed in that space. Another one is a, a verbal de-escalation tool. Sorry, Don. Yeah, I mean, wait, sorry, maybe sorry. Find this other piece of that. No, this is great. So you're right that one of the things it says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. All right, that's a Mike Tyson quote. And it's so it's totally true that when you, we don't, we're not, uh, we're not, we're less violent now than we've ever been before. And being in situations where it is, it's, it's for the person that's inside the, the emergency room, it could be to them perceived as life or death. And when it's life or death, violence increases because then it comes down to, I need to survive and you are preventing me from doing that for whatever reason, whatever, you know, because there's the doctors are busy or any, anything that's happening. I could see that. I could see it freaking out. And so you're exposing very much like this virtual rat exposure therapy. You're exposing them to this type of violent situations and desensitizing them to the actual violent nature so that they know how to respond with the training. Um, I was going to be curious, how do they, is it just simply the exposure? Now we can talk about the verbal de-escalation, which I want, want to go into, but, but looking at it from the actual exposure therapy side of things, how do you know it's effective? Do you ask them questions afterwards? Do you role play it? What's your, what's your base for measurement to tell that they are actually desensitizing themselves to the actual uh, trauma of the experience? And, and how do you know it's, it's being effective? Yeah. It's, again, again, we, we, uh, it, it's very, it's automatic. We put people in a headset, they go, oh, wow. Oh, wow is automatic. Mm -hmm. And so what we, one of the things that we require of ourselves, because um, I'm a co-lead co of uh, the Faculty of Medicine and Health Media Lab. So we have a media lab set up and its job is to do these sorts of programs and to, to find ways to add value to training environments, particularly in medicine and health. Um, and so what we do is we need, we need to have evidence. We need to have evidence base. And this, this is getting back to your question about who is important to have in the group. Administration in a hospital environment, hospital administrators are running as fast as they can. Everybody in a hospital, particularly now with COVID, everybody's running as fast as they can. They're stressed and maxed out. No, no practice is going to be changed in hospital unless you have a solid evidence base that what you're doing is more efficacious than the current practice. So this is why we go through a process of assessing current practice. What's the new, what's the current baseline? What are people doing now? How are people being trained? What are the outcomes? What are the learning outcomes of that course of study that they're put through? And then we look at how we can provide these interventions and we have to put ourselves under the pressure of saying, what will success look like? What, how will that student or that trainee's behavior change as a result of the curated experience we provide for them? And that, that's, that's a, often a tough question to answer, but we ask that question constantly. We're constantly saying, okay, we, before the person uh, joins our course of study, we, mm -hmm. we think their behaviors will be here. When they have finished it, we want them to be able to be there. How do we measure that? And we're actually going through that process at the moment. What's happened as a result of the Code Black project Mm -hmm. is that the entire training regime for people entering the emergency department has been rewritten and we've been able to contribute to the rewriting of that program and the vr tool that we've developed is part of that curriculum now it's been written into the curriculum so not only the learning outcomes that are necessary for us to provide in terms of prior to the experience during the experience and after the experience 
but the course itself is needs to be uh, congruent with those experiences that we provide. So that's, mm. that's been very gratifying and my sort of curriculum design background has been valuable in terms of being able to um, provide that research framework, that educational research framework, so that we can um, be sure that we're not just giving people an oh wow experience, that we're actually mm. um, skilling them up. Just, just getting back to the, um, your question about stakeholders, um, mm -hmm. one thing that our research uh, uncovered was that um, nip it in the bud is the best, not, not only being exposed to violent episodes so that you're aware that you can survive them, we found that nipping it in the bud, that is when someone has precursor violent behaviour and you approach them and you talk to them or you try to take care of their needs or whatever that intervention is, that is the most effective strategy. One study that we found from a group in Victoria, when they impl implemented a procedure that required staff to intervene when people had precursor violent behaviours, they eliminated code black events entirely. So mm. none of those people progressed to violence. And so what we've done in this environment, one of the modules is um, a new procedure, which is that not only is a patient in the emergency department assessed routinely for their temperature, their pulse rate, you know, whatever their medical condition requires, they're also assessed for their behaviour. And if they, mm -hmm. ha if they have two out of six or more behaviours that are concerning, medical staff are required to go up to them, talk to them, required mm -hmm. to ask them what their needs are, required to engage with them. And that in itself, just simply noticing those behaviours, um, being able to have situational awareness so that you can be aware that someone who is staring at you, someone who is doing this across the, the back of the couch, someone who is pacing, um, someone who's muttering, so any of those things, those, pre, those known precursor yeah. signals for, for pre-violent behaviour, if you, if you are in our environment that we've created, you are attuned to those uh, environments and you can, then you are required to intervene. And that mm. strategy itself has been the most effective one that we found for eliminating or reducing uh, those uh, patients. Got it. Which, of course, is the beautiful segue from why you, you first made this code black de-escalation de application. And then the service, the need that is populated from that is the number one effective tool for de-escalation of code blacks is to nip in the bud is which is why you have this verbal de-escalation tool uh experience that you're talking about as the second piece uh to this pie is that correct yes correct yeah so there's there's just to be just to be clear there's one mm. we shot a 360 video of a, of a, yeah. a re reproduction of an of a emergency department we had yeah. actors playing the role of patients and we got them yeah. to escalate the behavior to increasing violence and mm. the person in that environment needs to observe the i think it's eight or 12 patients in the in the space and notice which ones of them are starting to exhibit precursor violent behavior so simply noticing mm -hmm. is one one of our outcomes and we we can test whether they have noticed then we also have a an interactive avatar uh which is a, a person that comes up to them and they have a verbal uh interaction with that avatar and they can rehearse their verbal de-escalation skills so if you say uncompassionate things to them, they get more angry. The avatar gets more angry. If you say uh, compassionate things, the, the avatar gets less angry. And again, mm. the outcome is 
the person the person's anger level go, comes down to normal or they escalate off the chart that's how we assess whether they've got the skill set or not so we've mm. developed that the capacity to have a verbal um, exchange open-ended exchange with um, an avatar which allows you to rehearse your verbal de-escalation skills that's great with that what i'm imagining and i'm pretty sure it, let me know if i'm on the same point is when you're talking about a chance for them to, to to try their verbal de-escalation skills what they're having is they have a choice a dialogue dialogue box of a couple different options they pick one it goes up pick another one it goes down and another, maybe another one does something else but basically they're allowed to again kind of choose the path of what are they when you say saying compassionate things what you're really talking about is selecting boxes uh that have this is the best sentence to say correct no, in this instance, they actually, you actually say it to the person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. So, and now, yeah. now that one isn't multiplayer, right? You're, you're just, you're, you just, there's a, there's a, a sense that you choose and then you speak it out, correct? You don't choose it, you say it. So, if, say the, it. if the, if you go up to the, to the avatar who's the patient and say, How can I help you today? And the mm -hmm. avatar says, I've been kept waiting for 12 hours and I'm sick to death of it. The avatar could say that. You yeah. say to them, uh, sit down and be quiet. There's a lot more sick people than you. They're going to get more angry. If you say, I'm really sorry to hear that. We're really smashed here today. Um, I'll get you an update on your um, situation and give you some time frame for when you when we'll be able to get to you. I'm really sorry for that you're mm -hmm. going through at the moment. Is there anything I can do for you? If you say that, the patient gets less angry. And what we're, what we're developing now, it's not scripted. This is using GPT-3 and being able to access um, the, the uh, I guess it's AI really, um, mm -hmm. the, the patient makes up its own dialogue. And so you have a, an ongoing open-ended conversation with them where depending on what, what you vis actually say out loud to them, it's analyzed, it goes, you know, recaptured, converted to text, text is analyzed, it forms it into a response, then that, that alters the behavior of the avatar in real time. Mm, I love it. Okay, that that helps because my mind I was trying to picture what that would look like if someone experienced it. And what you're talking about is this is the Google AI system. There is that, is that what that is? Your GPT, yeah. And so yeah. You, you 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 can you can feed it in certain types of um, frameworks and behaviors, and then the AI will respond accordingly based upon what you feed it. Um, yep. And what's great about that is, yeah, in speaking it and practicing it, um, I'm wondering, is any other, uh, you can see how the re response in terms of that, the, the one piece, the reason why I was actually what I was alluding to was more sentiment, right? As, as we know, in terms of the language, uh, content is merely a smaller percentage as context and how you actually communicate the sentiments. Because I could, you know, we could say certain words the same way or differently in a completely different contrived meaning. So there's a way that there's a sentiment that's, that's engaged or a way for them to kind of view the way that they actually respond. Because it's much like a, uh, I feel like grocery workers sometimes get that NPC view. Hi, welcome to the store. Do you want to rate us today? Thank you so much. We'll have a nice day. I'll take care. Anything else? Paper or plastic? Bye now. Right? Yes, you did say the words. But is there, is there a piece of that that you've addressed at all? It's probably the toughest frontier that we're looking at. Um, and mm. it's, it's fascinating because all of the off-the-shelf uh, text-to-voice engines uh, mm. are nice. They, it, it, we haven't been able to find one that can get angry. We've been trying and trying <laughs> and trying to say, like, you know, Siri and Alexa yeah. don't shout back at you if you annoy them. They just stay calm oh, man, forever. So and great. so there's the, the research has not been put into what we need, which is to say, um, it, th this is something that we've been grappling with a lot. How do we uh, go beyond the verbal skills mm -hmm. to the, uh, as exactly as you're describing, um, 
how how can we make the avatar sound angrier and how can we make uh, make an assessment of our student in headset um, their affect level you know when they're angry you can say have a nice day in a whole lot of levels as you say and it mm. can be uh, very lovely or very angry um, and yeah. we need that's probably the frontier of things that we're working on how can we get that level of credibility into the experience that that's probably the the cutting edge of where we're at yeah and that's the things that you know what could you do uh, to get there because that's the the context is everything and we're you know we're building up these virtual environments you can kind of dictate what needs to happen in those types of um areas and i do think you're right nip it in the bud early i mean that works across the globe and almost every situation is if you can de-escalate before it blows up almost always better uh than when it actually blows up and you got to try to put the genie back in the bottle uh when you're talking about the sentiment piece right there are ais that do it they're kind of you know rudimentary um in the in the areas that's why i didn't know if there's a way to maybe record them and they could hear themselves back or do reverse role plays or any of those other types of situations that would allow for you to experience what it sounds like because as a piece the challenge that we have is this of these emergency workers as, as you said it this and we're going to bring it back again it's the worst day for the person coming in it's their tuesday right for the professional so how do you how do you as a as a service professional a medical professional how do you stay empathetic right and not let that emotion of all the negativity and the fear and the dread and all that stuff bleed into you and affect you because if you want to be empathetic and you want to be able to connect with people but you also want to protect your own heart from the daily um uh, atrocities that happen across the board how do you how do you keep them empathetic as well as keep them being able to do their job without breaking down crying that's that's what i'd be curious if you have any thoughts yeah that's, around it's that. it's again that's why i have an infinite respect for the people that do it and what we find is the 10-year veterans who've been dealing with very difficult people for as, as part of their routine they they have uh, a set of skills that they've acquired basically through the school of hard knocks they've, yeah. they've had to deal with these people and they've reflected on their own practice and they've said i could have done that better and keep mm -hmm. at it and keep at it and keep at it and they eventually have a skill set and even when we talk to some of these people about what did you do then that it's it's been acquired almost unconsciously through through simple um workplace experience and so people we, what we wanted to see is whether we could accelerate the acquisition of that skill set because if somebody mm -hmm. um what what can happen in an ed is that new entrance to the profession if if someone is kicking off over in the corner they will try to not try it they may naturally feel like they want to avoid that and leave it to the more experienced people because they don't feel equipped to deal with it but if we can give them that facsimile of the interaction in a safe environment and we can give them the training wheels to say look all if even if you go up to the person and they say i've been kept waiting for 15 hours and you say i'm really sorry to hear you've been kept waiting for 15 hours even mirroring is a skill and if you if you simply mirror back what the person says it's a skill and you can mm -hmm. rehearse that skill and if you employ that skill it works it helps mm -hmm. it makes the person feel heard and it helps them to vent and it helps them to incrementally decrease it also means that you're modeling respectful behavior and so the person staring at you is not seeing that you're getting angry they're seeing that you're staying calm and they that person tends to mirror that and start to de-escalate themselves. So if you can provide that person with a with a, a visceral, emotional sense that I can do this, 
I've, I've yeah. rehearsed this. I've got a skill now. I've got a tool in my locker. The next time they're on the floor and someone's kicking off, maybe they'll be a little bit more encouraged to go up to them and say, what's happening for you? How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. What, what's going on for you? And, and have that in their tool set. And that, that's yeah. sort of what we're trying to do. And that, the threshold of stepping up to that level is, is, is tough. We, and I think VR, the question we're asking is why VR? I think VR mm-hmm. can perform that middle level step of being safe but also um, uh, intellectually, emotionally, and physiologically challenging. Yeah, yeah. It can uh, is the it increases the sense of perceived risk without any actual risk along the path, yeah. right? So you can you can train yeah. because of that emotional intensity plus education creates that retention, right? So the the more you, you can more yeah. provocative you can make it as they say in the clinical space, the, the more the people retain. Yeah, that's fascinating you should say that because, sorry to interrupt you, Dylan, but one area yeah, of inter- that I'm interested in researching is that I actually think, and this comes from my theatre and film background, yeah. that memories are more indelibly etched if they are attached to emotions. And this oh, is why for sure. in, in, in a lot of educational environments, we say it's information in, did, you, did it stick? And in VR it's information in, but it's also with emotions attached. And I believe yeah. that the memories are more indelibly created when they're attached to memories, to emotions. So um, that's a bil- interesting. A billion percent. Say. Well, I mean, this is the thing about the oldest, one of the oldest technologies we have is language. And what was language? Language was used to convey stories as a way to say uh, a type of mental mirror neurons, right? That's what we're talking about, right? It's like, I get dropped into a jungle. A beast starts chasing me. Don't go down that cave because that's where the monster lives. That's where, you know, Timmy got eaten, right? That was a, we used it to convey the stories and the more important, the more emotional, the more the the more that we retained it. And so that's that's why that was important because it says, this is important, pay attention for whatever, for whatever emotion you want to insert there. So yeah, hundred percent. It's just, it's just how do you inject the emotion into a clinical experience where people naturally um, in the medical space has been kind of well known for their emotionless response to highly emotional situations. And that's, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a hard question to kind of answer and look at. And, and how do you, how do you actually do that? And how do you measure that is, is a, uh, one of those fundamental pieces, if you can inject, that's why it's, it was like, you know, like uh, Moulin Rouge, plays, comedies, all those things are all engaging emotions. It's like, you know, how do we bring those emotions from the things that we've known that works into this somewhat emotionless sector and be able to kind of create people that, you know, what's this tactical empathy that you're referring to, allowing yeah. people to be able to, to, to leverage it in a way that actually deescalates these situations. So yeah. I, I like that. Fasten- I like tactical empathy. Tactical empathy. I'm going to yeah. use that. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah feel you. free. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. There you go. <laughs> no, man. But it's on. It's on point with what what you're talking about. It's like how do you how do you leverage this and what does this look like? And then you know you know what do you think for yourselves is like you're talking about this is the frontier of this. Can you envision like what is your I would say like um, what is your holy grail output of what you're trying to create? Like with all these things said and done and what you're trying to do, is there a flag in the sand pinnacle peak of what you're trying to build um, in this genre? Um, I suppose, I suppose it's, it's each, each one, there isn't a generic answer to that. I don't think because each environment and each problem space is, Mm -hmm. is unique. What, what, it's, but the framework, I suppose, is the same. And so I think that it's that framework of forming the stakeholder community, analysing the problem space, getting evidence around what's happening, 
what we're finding, I guess it sort of comes from a design thinking approach, is that we, we mm. want to establish what's the human value that we're pursuing. Okay. Is it, is it uh, confidence? Is it uh, com competence? Is it capability? Is it um, calmness? You know, we try to establish what's the, uh, in a way, what's the learning outcome emotionally that we're trying mm -hmm. to achieve um, that's missing from the current practice. What, what mm -hmm. can VR bring and add value to? And once we establish and define that beacon really clearly, it becomes the, the house that we keep cycling back to through all this iterative practice. We keep mm -hmm. trying out, a, we keep prototyping an app, putting people through it, getting feedback, saying, did that produce that competence that we were looking for, that confidence, whatever that mm -hmm. beacon was that we established. So although every, every problem space is unique, we still have had this um, process that's been uh, productive. And because we keep on testing what we do and involving our stakeholder group, it can lead to organisational change. And I think the mm -hmm. thing that's important in our space is that we work with the people in the middle of the problem who are in the hospital environment and we have outside developers who help support us. Um, and rather than being outside the hospital system, trying to develop an app to sell it into the hospital. So it's sort of an inside out process rather than an mm. outside in commercial process. Mm -hmm. And that that's, I think is important. And what we've found is that because what we've done has worked in our hospital, in our local health district, and our administrators and security guards and doctors and nurses and trainers have, have been on board with us developing the app, it's led to an overhaul of the whole training regime in that space. So it's affected real world change. It's not a matter mm -hmm. of us looking at the problem space, going back to the lab, developing an app, and then putting it up on the, on the app store to sell. Mm. It's actually about demonstrating that it, is, it, it, it produces effective change in a real world hospital environment. And if we're able to do that, then we can scale that from district to district, from state to state, and hopefully from country to country, which is what we're just starting to look at now. Mm. So then the holy grail for you, at least uh, in part, is actually having affectional, effect, effective organizational change in real world hospitals and spreading that you know, across the you know, first state, country, globe, and out the door from there to actually have real impact, real world impact. That's the holy grail? Yeah, of course, because yeah. otherwise, you yeah. know, it, a lot of people can make an app and it'll be, it'll sit on the shelf. There'll be a, a cupboard full of headsets and no one will ever turn them on. Mm -hmm. Unless it's embedded but, in real change, it's not actually producing an effective change in outcome. What do you, what do you think is like a, an unknown, not an unknown, but an unforeseen threshold guardian? And if this is the goal, you know, what's something, what's what I'd call a dragon that is, that is, uh, uh, you know, kicking the crap out of you? for lack of a better terms, that is a challenge to be able to overcome in order to get this holy grail outcome? Um, I th I, it, it's, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, there's a few brick walls we're banging our heads against. Um, what, gathering the momentum that, that to, to, to get change in, an, in an, a busy, stretched organisation like a hospital, that, that's a challenge in itself. But there are great people there and if you, they only want to serve their patients. And if you can show them there's a better way, they will come on board. So that, that's a winnable war. Um, part of it is also though making uh, headsets uh, ubiquitously available. We, we want to be able to say, here's your headset, take it home. So, you know, even that, it has, they have to log on to their, maybe their home Wi-Fi or not. You know, we, how can we make it so that they can go home, 
put the headset on, have the experience, put it back, bring it back the next day, sign it back in. Mm. Just getting that so easy that it's as easy as giving them the ring binder to take home to study. You know, that in itself, the UX of that, all of the technical problems, the having enough headsets, maintaining them, having troubleshooting, you know, making sure that the tool itself is as easy to use as, as one of these or the laptop mm. um, and as natural a training tool as any other, that that we need to do more work on because it's still a novelty act for a lot of people. Mm. And we, we, if we want it to be a ubiquitous tool, we have to make sure that that works. Yeah. Do you use Oculus Quest? Is that the is that the headset yeah. of choice or Quest yeah. Two, yeah 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 Quest yeah, Two currently yeah yeah because what you're talking about right that is is how do I turn this from a single application that lives on a, a developer's headset uh, in his in his in his room right to uh, an actual scalable um, enterprise level software tool that is frictionless that you can just pop and drop and then be able to give it to them as simple as you'd give out any other piece of standard SOP, you know, technology that they can use, right? That's the that's the main yeah. issue, right? Yeah. yeah. Have you yeah. have you looked at have you looked at the Oculus Enterprise at all? Are you familiar yeah, with that? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, we are. It, yeah. They have they have things on there like fleet management systems and other things where you can load applications on there. You can update the applications remotely. You can give them login accounts. You can up, you know, all all the lot of those bells and whistles and stuff that are like that that yeah. is a big problem to get onto there. And that, that is, I think, what what's great about it is like. The technology this day and age is like we're we're slowly getting to what you're talking about this ubiquitous thing. The headsets aren't as common as cell phones, so not everybody yeah. has it has it yet. But you know, but yeah. I think we did. I think the Oculus did like did 10 million headsets last year, and who knows how many this year. And China is going to be rolling in. So I'm this what you're talking about these main issues. I'm I'm hoping that big companies like Meta or anybody else comes along and goes, oh, I see your problem. Here's a big solution that you can just jump onto and integrate it. So um, yeah, I. I feel that pain. I think that is a big problem where everyone's getting where you're actually doing the effective change. But then, you know, I, I know for me when I was developing headsets and uh, applications and a couple of years ago, it was like, oh, yeah, you just got to get a, a Pelican case. It's like 100 pounds. You just put a $2,000 laptop, another uh, $1,000 PC. You put up these lighthouses in each of the corners. You just go ahead and sync everything up with the P and you'd be totally fine. So I, I feel like we're moving into the direction where it is easier, but it's not what you're talking about where anybody has this kind of... Um, Anybody has that commercial grade access to a frictionless system, which is, yeah. is there, if, if you could have any of those changes or updates, what, what's something that you'd want to see that would make your life way, way easier for this process? Yeah, I think, I think what you're talking about is right. I think it's emerging, but it is, I think you're right that um, the headsets have basically been created to be user owned um, consumer grade. And so they, mm. they operate in that environment. What we're talking about is, is having a stack of them in the hospital. And yeah. signing them out to people as a training tool, and so not not owners. They're, they're, it's a tool to take home and bring back. So they're yeah. occasional users, and it needs to, as you said, frictionless is the, is a great term for that. That mm -hmm. that capacity to say it's bespoke to this thing. You turn it on, it does this training. You know, in our world, we want to have one suite that has just the training apps that our people need, yeah. and they get, they can go in there. They're familiar with it. Simple interface, just as that. We don't need them to go to the app store. Yeah. We don't need them to go onto YouTube. We just need it. So I think that that end of it, the end, I guess that's the enterprise end of it. We, yeah. that, if, if that can work more effectively in our bespoke setting, then we can also convince a hospital to buy the headsets, maintain them, yeah. get IT to look after them. You know, there's a whole infrastructure piece around that, which is not mm. attached to consumer owners. That's a different yeah. paradigm for how it's deployed. 
Yeah, Oculus has that. Um, it's about it's about eight hundred dollars per headset, um, and then you can have only no no app store, no Facebook login, only your applications. Put it on, ready, set, go. Um, so I think that's that. I think that that suit those needs really nicely. It's just getting on that list. Mm-hmm. I can connect you afterwards if you want um, sure. with those types of people um, for that because yeah, it sounds like you're at that thing. And, and what I love about it is you you you've identified real world problems. And you've gone through the phases of, okay, the emotional piece of how do you respond to violence, just seeing the violence, just being, and then how do you, instead of just reacting in the moment when it gets at you, you, you look, hey, what's the, what's the pre-escalation part that can you, can you become aware of that along the path? If you can identify that, great. If not, oh, poop, there, it's going to happen. How do you handle it in the worst case scenarios? And then if you can prevent it, how do you bring people into situations and what do they say and what do they do to actually deescalate and look at those, those habits and those patterns? I want to just real quick as we start to wrap up here, you talked about 10-year veterans that have naturally ingrained habits and patterns of de-escalations, and those guys can stop it before they start because they know uh, you know, a short conversation up front will solve the problem. What habits and patterns did you see that these people subconsciously exhibit in these environments and situations so that, that you could take that and integrate that so that you know if your newcomers had these habits and patterns, then they would be efficient or capable of handling this situation when it pops up. But believe me, we have, we have tried and we do a <laughs> lot of analysis on exactly what that is. And I, I believe yeah. what it is is that when someone comes at you, you know, they're spitting yeah. with anger, they, they might be about to actually, as you say, punch you in the face. Yeah. Um, this is a daunting thing for any human to face. And so what, what do you do? There's a whole lot of things around not standing facing them, turning out three quarters so mm. um, they don't feel confronted. It's a very primal thing. Body mm. position is, is a useful thing. So you, your eye lines are not facing. They're, they're off to one side. Um, yeah. Even that is a, is a contribution. Being, as I was saying before, being able to mirror what they say, you know, I've been kept waiting 10 hours um, you say, oh, I'm sorry to hear you've been kept waiting 10 hours. Um, if you go through that, simply mirroring um, their language back to them, I believe, my, my view is that that person is, has been steaming and stewing for a while and needs that pressure valve released. And if you can weather that initial storm, which may only be a minute or, or a minute and a half, of them saying four, three, four, five sentences of, my father is sick, you're not helping me, I'm sorry to hear your father's not well. I will, I'm going, doing my best to get you some help. If you go through that cycle, what, what happens then, there's, then there's a kind of um, negotiation phase where you start to say, um, it sounds to me like you don't feel like you've had enough information or um, you'd really, it would really help if I got you an iPhone charger or can I get you a bit of breakfast? It sounds like you haven't had anything to eat for a while or would it help if I got you a shower? That would you make you feel better? Like you start to negotiate needs. And so then they put the person themselves can no longer be saying, this person doesn't care about me. This person doesn't help me. This person is not trying to help me. You, you just go, what do you need? How can I help? I'm really sorry that you've been put in this situation. That's something that's quite difficult for people who represent mm-hmm. an organization to say, but it's a very human way that, hurt, that helps a lot. You say, I'm really sorry to hear you're suffering. It's, it's, I, I re, if I was in your position, I'd feel exactly the same. Those basic things. And then it's almost like coming to an agreement with them. How about I get you an iPhone charger? Um, I'll, get, I'll find out when the medical team are going to be here. We're going to do our best to get you out of here within a few hours. And if you can come to, and they say, oh, 
Okay, now that, that may have only taken three minutes, but not doing it can lead to someone being put in hospital. We had a, we had mm. a nurse here about know, six weeks ago. Some, some, a patient grabbed her head and whacked it into the wall and she had 17 stitches down the front of her skull. <sighs> And a lot, a lot of people who have these traumatic events don't return to the, to the sector because it's just yeah. too, why would you? So, yeah, you know, that, that, that's, the, that's the space that we're wow. working on right now is what so, is that unconscious skill set that veterans have that we can yeah. analyze and, and try to recreate? Yeah, and that's the that's the thing to figure out that unconscious skill set you know that that veterans have. It's what does that look like? Um, and, I, and I love the I love it because it's it's a real use case. It really affects VR. It's a, it's actually it's critical. It's timely. It's rare. It's risky. It's dangerous. So I you know I I, I love all the work that you're doing. Um, with with all of that being said, and talking about this project, is there anything else you'd like to let people know before you tell them how to get a hold of you or find out more about the project? No, just that we're, we're open door. Like we, we, we're always trying to find that space, that problem space that people need, need something to be done better. And, and we'd like to hear about those problems. You know, we're looking at PTSD at the moment. We're looking at needle phobia. We're looking at all sorts of spaces. And if the problem is, is a, a widespread one, like a worldwide problem that if a lot of people have, is it worth investing the time and effort to create a virtual reality environment. How can how can we analyze current practice? How can we look at value add for VR? You know, it might be a few things we've looked at. We go, it's not worth spending X thousand dollars developing a VR app because you're only solving one problem once. You know, we, mm. there's a certain set of parameters around the problem that that need to be satisfied in order to make it worthwhile investing the time and effort in developing one of these apps. But if it is a better thing then hopefully it's going to be scalable and a lot of people will get benefit from it. So we've got a got an open door policy. We're looking for, um, you know, people all over the world have these same problems we do. We'd love to hear about it. We'd love to collaborate. We'd love to um, test out. We, we're already with our ALS app. We're getting inquiries from all over the world. People want to test it, see if it works. Um, we'd love to do that and get our evidence base more profound so that we can make a better case for it being adopted as a, as a valuable tool. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, partnerships, customers, use cases, and then just mapping out say, Hey, it doesn't make sense for VR. Okay. If it does looking at the numbers and roll it out and solve this problem, which is great, which is a wonderful approach for that. Um, with all that being said, uh, how do people get a hold of you or find out more about what you're working on? Uh, my, my email address is my name, martin.brown, which should be on the screen there at, um, sydney.edu.au martin brown sydney sydney edu.au perfect martin thank you so much for your time brother i really appreciate uh chatting with you and going really deep in the topics of code black and all the other good work that you're doing um very much appreciate you thank you so much for your time have a blessed and beautiful day and i'll see you on the other side great dylan lovely to talk to you mate have a good day absolutely too bye now take, take care. care bye Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.